This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello, you are listening to Triple R and welcome to another episode of Plato's Cave, a film criticism show and podcast. I'm Stuart Richards and with me tonight are my glorious co-hosts, Emma Westwood and Cerise Howard. Welcome. Happy Easter. Happy Easter to you, Stuart. Did you uh, get, yeah, happy Easter, Stuart. Did you get uh, bunnies, chocolate bunnies? I got lots of chocolate, thanks to mum. Oh, bless, bless her. Bless mum. Yeah, bless her. That's great. I actually ate probably my um, weight in hot cross buns. Oh, good. Yes. Great. Mm. And Cerise, how was your Easter? <laughs> uh, yeah, look, I did not eat a lot of chocolate, nor did I eat many hot cross buns. I think no, no buns. Sad. Very little chocolate. <laughs> Uh, dietary issues and such The stuff oh. of scintillating radio uh, Of course On tonight's show we will be looking <laughs> <laughs> Alright, back to me yeah. um, On tonight's show we will be looking at Aki Kurismaki's, um, a dr- uh, his dry comedic take on the refugee crisis with The Other Side of Hope and we take a look at Ardman's latest Early Man, which sees an absurd soccer match take place between the Stone Age and the Bronze Age. But first, To Love, Simon, directed by Greg Bellanti, starring Nick Robinson. Simon Spear is a happy, closeted teen in suburban Atlanta, Georgia. He uh, has a relatively close relationship with his family and a strong friendship circle. When his best friend Leah, played by Catherine Langford of Netflix 30 Reason, 13 Reasons Why, informs Simon of an anonymous online confessional of a gay teen at their high school using the codename Blue, Simon strikes up a pen pal friendship. Uh, which causes Simon to question just who this blue is. When their secret letters are discovered, Simon must come to terms with his sexuality in a very public manner. The cast is full of interesting and genuinely funny supporting characters, and this is a very well-written teen drama by screenwriters Elizabeth Berger and Isaac Abtica, adapted by the novel uh, from Becky Abatelli. Given that the distributor is 20th Century Fox, this is the first studio-backed gay-themed teen film. There have, of course, been plenty of independent films on the subject, many of which also screened at the recent Melbourne Queer Film Festival. But nevertheless, this is something of a trailblazer. It's not without its issues, however, with some critics labelling the film as offering only a very narrow way for gay teens to be happy. I, however, was immensely moved by this charming film. What were everyone else's thoughts, Emma? Oh, Emma. Emma, jump in first. I've just uh, watched this film only this afternoon and um, it started and it starts on a very, very um, sunny, beautiful, positive note that kind of made me... They talked about we are the... I come from a normal family. He doesn't. (laughs) But it it, it made me... I I thought, oh, my God. I just... I think I felt a little bit of vomit in the bottom of my... But... (laughs) This film, as I went along, there's something about it's uh, something about storytelling that over you know many centuries, not just recent years, but many centuries, that there's a, a certain uh, storytelling structure, three act structure that unfolds. That's you know not necessarily surprising, yet is immensely satisfying. And this film very much followed that. Um, that structure in a very accomplished, strong manner. And it was, um, 
it, it reminded me, like I, I kept on looking at it at the, at the start and thinking I've been brought up in the, you know, clueless genera- generation which would show this perfection or these perfect homes in a certain ironic manner or uh, the John Hughes style of things or Heathers, which is, you know, sort of making a bit of fun. This was doing it on purpose, but not necessarily to make fun of it. I mean, there were things like in his art direction in the the room of Simon, he, you know, he had his blackboard, you know, walls of his room that were just also perfect and now and what you want to be as a, as a teen. But as I sunk into it and I just went along with the storytelling ride, it, it reminded me of seeing for the first time, which I stumbled across on TV, Ever After with Drew Barrymore and something that I would never choose to have seen but had this immensely satisfying um, storytelling arc. And then I realised... This is a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale that's talking about real life issues, which is often what fairy tales are talking about. And it is like a Cinderella fairy tale. It's a it's a coming out tale. And um, it kind of felt like you just get swept up in this story and it wasn't about looking at fabulous lighting or amazing directing or anything like that. It was just being absorbed in this story with really beautiful people <laughs> to look at and, um, and, and the enjoyment of that and the revelations as well that come with it. Well, Greg Volanti, a lot of his work is through producing television. So it's really interesting that you're not seeing it as a very cinematic film. No, not at all. Mm. Not at all. But that wasn't a problem Yeah. in the end. Yeah. I mean, part of its uh, beauty and kind of power comes in just how conventional the film is. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I cast my mind back to Lady Bird, which we covered on the show not so long ago. And these this was definitely set in Amelia, which Lady Bird would have identified as being on the right side of the tracks. I mean, this, this neighbourhood is otherworldly yes. to me. <laughs> that, that it's just two picture postcard suburbia perfect. There's a really intriguing moment as the film closes, and this isn't a spoiler for anybody, and actually, so fear not, loyal listeners, we shall not lead you astray, but there's a, just suddenly this, that, that environment is offset uh, as we see a cityscape in the background just uh, juxtaposed against this um, idyllic, uh, leafy suburb. So many leaves. So many leaves. So many trees. Yeah, that's quite a curious moment because it's kind of apropos of nothing exactly, though maybe it is just as if to say, look, this is a little a little enclave here, a little fairy tale enclave. This isn't how most people actually live. Yes, people do have these problems about coming out and how to go about doing it, and uh, hopefully that isn't done in a way that... Um, the act of coming out is taken from the person who wishes to do so, especially in such a fashion as is in this film. But actually, it, even though it clearly becomes a problem for Simon, it, it no one uh, suddenly becomes, let's say, suicidal or no one is really deeply affected. Everyone's lives here is so idyllic, in fact, that when, when a, a real crisis emerges in any of their lives, they kind of just manage to cope in a way that is kind of fairy tale like as well. It's mm. not super realistic or is it i don't know i've never lived in that sort of world that's that's not the <laughs> suburbia i grew up in um, this is it. this is actually though i'd like to point out it's a sub- suburbia of halloween so there's other um scenarios yeah. that can play out in this sub- suburbia that's true <laughs> that'd um, be a fun twist yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> But it did have actually, you know, talking about it as being in a, you know, a, a storyline that's, 
you didn't necessarily unanticipate the ending or anything like that. It it did have this lovely um, this lovely storyline of who is who is Blue, which is the character that he is corresponding with online, who he actually falls in love with, and that's a character that we're constantly guessing at and we're looking at through his imagination through the entire film. And the constant voiceover changes of Blue reading out the letters I thought was really quite Yeah, that was very done. good. Yeah. Well, there's a nice elegant sl- bit of uh, sleight of hand at the very outset of the film where we hear Simon's voiceover and that, in fact, turns out to be the first email mm. he types. Mm. It's nice, nice little elegant move where, um, yeah, of telegraphing. Without telegraphing, that's telegraphing. You know what mm. I mean? <laughs> uh, one thing I did pick up on is when uh, Simon has no idea who Blue is, uh, that the actor playing Blue is just goes back to this fairy tale of just this conventional, white, muscly, masculine gay dude. Yeah, Before yeah. he can sort of substitute Blue for these people that he knows in his real life. I think it's really interesting that part of this fairy tale is just like that white blue figure. It kind of had the feel of that Simon didn't know really what it was to be gay. You know, he was trying to work that out. He was Mm. going, what do I feel versus what it actually is, Mm. you know, because remember he he did that thing where he looked up what what gay people wear and he was trying to, you know fit the ideal of that, but and then never he says, actually yeah. did. And then he says, I can't be that gay, I can't be that gay. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So there's a little kind of maybe an with awkward... The, with the Whitney Houston song. Yeah, with the Whitney Houston song. <laughs> but, <laughs> but even that identity crisis is hardly a crisis. He just yeah. sort of has played comedically, tries a few different tops on. That's mm. about as far as that goes. It's, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, There's a, quite a bit of this that is superficial, and yet the sweetness... Um, and sincerity of it, I think, shines through nonetheless. I mean, I found myself moved. It, it, that third act, uh, you know, this mm. does have that classical sort of structure. Mm. Uh, it, it was a tear-jerking third act. Yeah. It was perfectly lovely. Yeah. I, I, I forgive the film. It's um, it's putting me into a, a world that I actually any time I ever had a sense I might encroach upon, you know, that sort of world in my lived life and my own existence I would find actually confronting I'd feel out of my depth out of my class zone mm. yeah. uh, this um, this film really does exist in some sort of upper middle class thing where everyone has a McMansion and it's all matter of fact and it's all beautifully leafy and uh, teens drive in nice uh, four-wheel drives or what are they called over there um, four by fours SUVs SUVs yeah, lovely, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's all just too perfectly idyllic and and um What's her name? Is your mum? Jennifer, Jennifer, oh, Jennifer Garner. Yeah. Yeah. There's a conversation with her at the very end that I think is worded perfectly. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. That was that was really lovely. Mm. Yeah. Because um, this is obviously not a spoiler because um, he does come out to her um, where she says that, um, you know, when you came out you said that you can be, you're still you, but she says now you can be more you now that you're out. Which I think is an incredibly powerful line. And she said that he'd been holding his breath yeah, for the last few breathe. years and yeah. now you can properly breathe, yeah. Mm. yeah. So I think the fact that this is such an accessible film for so many audiences, I think there's a lot of power in, um, in just how many people are going to be watching this film. Yeah, there's, yeah. A, pa- there's a power in fairy tales. They're there oh. for a reason. Um, they're accessible. 
they they're they're accessible, um, just not on a, a level of being able to watch them easily, but also emotionally accessible, and they can say a lot of things. Mm. And this is, you know, it might not be set in a fantastical world. Well, maybe it is. <laughs> There's a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it's. I mean, Josh Duhamel is the dad. <laughs> I know, I know, and he's, you know, he has his moment of. Yeah. I think that you know, single parent, the the same the same sex parent, you know, uh, conundrum. You can see he grapples with it a little mm. bit, but um, uh, it's it's a film that makes it these issues very palatable for mm. everyone, mm. which I think is a, a nice entry point for all people to understand the, the the like. There was one point where he said about feeling angry that he was the one that had to come out, that it wasn't um, that you had to come out for every sexuality, like go, and they did a really great montage sequence where they had all the kids going, mum, I'm straight, and, you know, that, oh, my God, you know, having to deal, and that was really nicely done. And he was, and I can understand that anger going, "Why, why can't I be the norm? Why do I have to go through this, you know? You know, there's uh, there've been a few films that have come out this year um, where people have assigned some sort of post-Trump uh, status upon them. But this is the first film that I've been actually very aware of, acknowledging that it was made, at least at some point, uh, along that line of the transition from Obama to Trump. It's really interesting. Mm. It actually acknowledges it that does. explicitly. Yeah, 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 it does. And I find this all the more interesting, knowing that, that, um, uh, that this is distributed, picked up by Fox, uh, you know, Fox and Friends, these are Trump's friends. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. these huge studios and huge multinationals with all their fingers in so many different pies aren't utterly monolithic in their ideology. And it's clear through a yeah. film like this and say when Amazon take on something like Transparent or that the, these organisations that you might imagine to be generally just uh, extremely conservative have all, all those other strands. I mean, Fox obviously had The Simpsons, still has The Simpsons under its wing all these years. But uh, it, it still feels weird to me to know that Fox, Fox of all, <laughs> of all studios, Rupert has uh, sold it though to Disney. To Disney, <laughs> <laughs> has sold what to Disney? <laughs> has sold 20th Century Fox. He sold the the film, Simpsons. He, no, he no. sold the um, the film uh, and television arm of the business. Yeah, yeah, he's kept hold of the to publishing. Disney. Yeah, Is that I know. Better or worse? I know I, exactly. Don't know. Discuss. Discuss. <laughs> I was about to ask whether or not Trump would watch Love, Simon <laughs> and what he would think. Yeah, yeah. I think that um, let's not forget that uh, these films make money and that yeah. probably speaks more to True. anyone. Well, that must be what it ultimately comes down to that allows these these huge um, corporations to allow for a bit of queer mischief or other sorts of subversion of normal traditional family values. It, yeah. There's money in it. So, yeah. of course, that's what and we can counts. also And we can also have pretty queers. Because uh, yeah, it's not like so Simon. Pretty. Oh my god! Everyone in the they film is so pretty. pretty. There was not a zit in sight. No, it re- there really wasn't. No, <laughs> <laughs> but the cast are so well written. They and are all of the peripheral characters. I mean, there's the drama teacher. I fucking love the drama teacher. Who just has so many wonderful moments. They gave her the clincher monologue. Like Simon didn't have it and I thought that was really great because Simon wouldn't have done that. Mm. I think that was actually keeping in his character. Mm. But when he was being gay shamed, Mm. 
that she stood up for him in the, and it was just like yes you know yeah. it, it was it was air pumping moment you I know, saw this great. at the Melbourne Queer Film Festival and this I mean it's really weird even though this was getting released the very next week Melbourne Queer Film Festival still had three sold out screenings of this film um, and I was at the the centerpiece uh, screening of it and when that scene happened when she has her her <laughs> rant the entire audience cheered it was such an incredible screening and there was this one person behind me that when this happens in a normal screening I hate it they commented on everything where they'd be like oh no don't do that oh my god oh no don't do that oh the poor thing the entire thing was running this audio commentary for the entire film <laughs> but it was really funny and it was really quite sweet because they were kind of crying for most of it as well yeah um, yeah and very yeah. In, very inclusionary this film too like mm. the level of diversity that they they obviously were checking boxes but it worked nicely. Yeah, it, it did work nicely. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a lot of characters of color in the film, and I don't. Feel, I mean, they're not really narrative devices in it in any way. They're really nicely fleshed out. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. I think that the uh, the actress who played what was her name? Her name was. Oh God, I can't find it. Anyway, she was a set who played the um, drama teacher. She was a uh, Natasha Rothwell. There you go. Yeah, she was a Saturday Night Live writer, from what I know. So yeah. yeah, yeah. So she came on with the attitude. Although I did love it. I'd like to point out that they went to um, a Halloween party. Simon and his best friend Leah went to the <laughs> as Yoko and John. So smart. So yes, great. but the thing is, I I thought he was Tommy Wiseau. <laughs> <laughs> You see it. He really looks like that. Very good. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Love, Simon is in general release now. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Now to Aki Krismaki and his film, The Other Side of Hope, uh, where he uses his typical deadpan humour to explore the experience of migrants and refugees from the Middle East in Helsinki. Being Finland's most celebrated filmmaker, he's perhaps best known for his work The Man Without a Past, Lights in the Dusk, and more recently, Le Havre. The Other Side of Hope won the Silver Bear for Best Director at the 26th Berlin International Film Festival. The film will also be his last. In the film, Sherwin Haji plays Khaled, a young mechanic from Syria who finds his way into Finland by stowing away on a container ship full of coal. Throughout his journey across Europe, he becomes separated from his sister, who he is desperate to reunite with. The film also introduces us to Vikstrom, played by Sakari Kusamanen, a recently divorced man who winds up owning a restaurant after winning a poker match. The two meet and decide to help each other improve their lives. While the humour of this film is quite absurd, it is in no way cold or inhumane. This is all about fostering a sense of kindness and hope with your fellow person. Though, if I'm going to be honest, uh, Kurismaki's humour is not for me. I found this film to be quite dull um, and I would be lying if I said I enjoyed it. Uh, But I'm interested to hear what others thought of this film. Have you seen any of his films before? I haven't actually. So this was, I must admit, this is a new experience for me. And Emma, have you seen any of his films? Yeah, Yeah. right back to Leningrad Cowboys. Cowboys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, this is interesting because when we were talking about doing this tonight, I had seen it at... at, um, a media launch actually for the Scandinavian Film Festival last year and and I hadn't taken away my, it wasn't that I didn't disliked it but I just went me me but then um 
I know Cerise was keen on covering it and uh, watching it again, I went, oh, I feel I was really harsh on that. I actually really, really enjoyed it watching it again and, and got a lot out of it, especially in terms of being a refugee film that had lightness of heart, I guess, because we can get very bogged down in these issues. And this was more about... Uh, although it it decided to bring in elements of realism, um, it was about uh, humanity and and the the generosity of the human spirit. I guess that's what came across, and it, it did have all those hallmarks of the Karasmaki films and beautiful, beautiful lighting and and beautiful set pieces and those colours, those soft. Palettes. I have a feeling it was shot in film. It was. Yeah, it was. Yeah, he swears by film. And I'm actually convinced this will be his last film because yeah, already I'm he's talking not. about how he would never make a film with digital technology as if to suggest that actually he's not done yet and he'll mm. be making another yes. film sometime soon. Yeah, because it is very much a film and it has this um, sort of uh, his his usual incongruous set pieces where, you know, that at the start when we see that, um, that character who owns the restaurant leave his wife and she's sitting there with her, her nail polishes and this kind of cacti, <laughs> cactus that's sitting there um, just seemingly out of place and dominating the mise-en-scene, our attention goes straight to that. And that's very much what he's, you know, like. And those sort of dry characters that sort of, you know, they, that the, I, the, immobile in in the within the frame that are kind of like Jaime from Get Smart or something like that and uh, very, very droll sense of humour. This time I, I felt I think he's a, he's definitely a mood director. You've got to be ready for it. It's got to be right at the time and watching it a second time, it was right for me. Well, I think he has a, quite a number of kindred spirits in film, um, ranging from Jim Jarmusch, who, who I think is really close in sensibility to Charismaki a lot of the time, and in love of rockabilly, yes. uh, which creeps into this film on several occasions, um, whether it's uh, someone busking in the street or various musical acts in uh, venues, including the rather iffy restaurant that they, they finally, the, the main characters finally managed to get the golden, off the, the golden pint. Right, yeah. Yes. The golden <laughs> pint. <laughs> Briefly a Japanese restaurant uh, called... Um, I can't oh, remember I forget well. what it was, but yeah. it was not successful. No, not, not, not <laughs> tremendously. Um, but there's something wonderfully, not just deadpan, but very economical about his storytelling. So that scene you mentioned before, Emma, right at the very start, man enters room, um, man drops keys on table, wife, we instantly gather wife because man takes a ring off, puts it in, uh, gives passes it to her, she puts it in ashtray, stubs a cigarette <laughs> yes. out through it. Next scene. Yeah. Well, we just learned an awful lot about these two people right there and we haven't really heard a word yet. Yeah. A beautiful opening image, quite startling, of uh, Khaled, the Syrian refugee who's at the core of this film, uh, as he just emerges from a, a huge pile of coal uh, and then traipses about through the city. It's all There's very little dialogue for quite some time. And then when there is, it's in that very stilted fashion that um, makes him also something of a, a, a brother-in-arms and filmmaking arms of Roy Anderson, my favourite Swedish miserabilist um, comedy director. <laughs> whose films like Songs from the Second Floor and uh, Pigeon Sat on a Branch contemplating its own existence and so on. I did think (laughs) of that film a lot when watching this film, actually. They they, they both have such uh, a marvellous... Um, uh, capacity for these compositions. Wes Anderson's in this mix as well, just these yeah. very perfect compositions. They're often very still, little tableaus and um, 
and uh, gently absurd things play out of them. In Roy Anderson's films, the gently absurd things are usually much meaner. Uh, I think Karasmaki's still a real humanist. I think Anderson's probably a real misanthropist. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I love Thankfully these... he's writing about dogs now. Yeah. Oh, Anderson. No, not Wes Anderson, but Roy Anderson, my Swedish... Uh, oh, sorry, yeah, the other yeah. Anderson. Yeah, I think Wes Anderson doesn't even know what people are. He's moving on to dogs now. He's never had actual people in his films. They're, they're just peculiar ciphers. Um, uh, but the, this deadpan... Uh, aesthetic. It's even an aesthetic. It's not just the sensibility, the comic sensibility, but just how things are shown so economically. And uh, I I enjoy this. I don't know if it's one of my very favourite of his films, but I like that he's such a champion of underdogs. He he goes in for the... He's always been um, sided sided with the working class in his films and other people of unglamorous parts of Finnish society. And he's just such a a distinct voice in that sense. We don't get a tremendous amount of Finnish cinema here. On occasion when we do, it's, it concerns Father Christmas or, or uh, <laughs> something similarly uh, removed drinking. from reality. Oh, yeah, well, drinking, quite close to reality, quite relatable. There was a Finnish mm. film in the Queer Film Festival. Oh, was there, in fact? Yeah. yeah. Did you see it? Uh, I did, yeah. Mm. Yeah, in, the, in the, uh, A Moment in the Reeds, oh. Yeah. Oh. which interestingly involved another refugee. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's interesting seeing a Finnish take on the, the mm. refugee crisis mm. and seeing that... Uh, the the Finnish people who are not terribly receptive to refugees in this are painted as you know, brutes and uh, whether it's brute bureaucracy or just thugs who don't even know who it is they're beating up. Like, um, <laughs> Jew boy. Jew boy, yeah. <laughs> um, that, that is scathingly blackly hilarious. Yeah. That was actually a really wonderful little moment. Um, or, or just these people who are nice but they're so uh, buttoned up about it and these Finnish people who aren't really letting themselves go. They're just uh, stiff and so awkward. Comically stiff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The when he's seeking asylum and there are the interviews, I thought that was a really interesting break mm. from that kind of campness of the rest of the film, uh, where it gets very real, I think, mm. in those sequences. And I think that's quite nicely done. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But overall I just Come on, Stuart, tell us. What did you think? Oh, I just would want it to finish. <laughs> Sorry. Boom, boom. Sorry, um, no, I just, I just didn't find it interesting and I didn't find it funny and I got sort of the, the deadpan humour he was going for, um, but I thought the, the restaurant taking shape when there's that kind of group coming together and trying to work together... Um, I thought that came too late in the game and too much of it, these two figures were too separate, I feel, where I think it would have been sort of... Which two figures? The uh, um, the restaurant owner and Khaled. Okay, all right. Yeah, and interestingly, for a film that is about hope, the end of the film left with me with no hope whatsoever. Um, I think that was pretty pointed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's the other side of hope. Yeah, the other side, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, I I just didn't find it interesting. Um, mm. Yeah. Okay. I liked. I did really like the way, as you you mentioned, with the um, the interviews, how they created a break. But I didn't feel that they really broke the tone, which I thought was very clever on his behalf. It felt like the whole film was harmonious. It wasn't like, oh, that's jarring. That doesn't make sense. Yet, so he can combine humour, yet still do something that's quietly devastating. Like to hear Khaled tell his story mm. was really, really heartbreaking. It was because an his awful tone story. of voice 
is very different to everyone else. I feel like there's the way he speaks, there's a lot more emotional in how he delivers his lines. I suppose. That's because he's not Finnish. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that could be it. <laughs> but there was a nice mix of language in there because often yes. there was the English. English seemed to be the um, the universal language. So I think that played a, a big role in it um, to have them speak a different language that's not their own language in order to communicate. Mm. Um, also a lovely little dog brought in to yes. have a nice little doggy moment, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's he's really the type of director that um, I think that you're either going to really like or not. That's the thing. And you kind of know what you're going to get from him. Mm. Um, the music, as, as Cerise mentioned, is definitely a part of his films and his music, the, the music that plays, you know, in within the film, the diegetically plays in the film is superb. Like mm. it, they were great. Those little, you know, those little buskers, these kind of old grizzly blues rootsy, great you know, band players. Yeah, yeah, and little interludes that that went past, and you know, moments when you know Khaled was dejected and having you know his face in the cafe and the you know the blues musician playing beside it. Um, yeah. It worked really well. But like I said, I, I, I didn't feel that impact on the first viewing, whether it was my mood or not. But then coming back around to it, I did, um, you know, a second viewing, it really sold it to me. Maybe I need a second viewing. Maybe you do, Stuart. Maybe you need to begin with the Leningrad Cowboys and work yeah, your way from there. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. He's exactly. been making films of this sort of tenor for a long time. Mm. And now he is saying that this is supposed to be his last film, but I don't believe him. What else no. is he going to do? It's like the Kiss mm. Farewell Tour. That's what he's doing. Right. <laughs> he's you know, he's um, also involved with the, the doing one... a John Farnham. Yeah, yeah. John yeah. Farnham. Yeah. Oh, look, don't put Farnham and Ike Karasmaki <laughs> in the same breath. What is that? Too he, harsh on the yeah. ears for he, you. He and his brother Mika have been involved in the film festival above all film festivals that I probably most have wanted to attend in my life and haven't yet. It's um, uh, the name escapes me slightly at the moment, but it's one that occurs in the middle of summer such that the sun never sets. Maybe it's the Midnight oh, Sun. Oh, my God. It's, it's right up in the far north Finland and you just go into the cinema and you come out and it's daylight and you go into the cinema and you come out again and it's daylight and <laughs> everyone just wanders around um, probably very disoriented much of the time. What an amazing environment in which to see cinema. Mm. I would. Uh, this festival still runs to the best of my knowledge. Why do they do it in summer? Why don't they do it in winter when it's dark all the time? Surely you don't want to be in a darkened room during summer. Well, that would be very deadpanly humorous, would it? (laughs) (laughs) Kind of works. (laughs) Well, just for the the beauty of that stark contrast in the dark, story time, dream time, come out again, it's daylight. I mean, maybe it's 3am, but still, it's It's the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do they have about two hours of darkness in summer? There's something like, do they have a moment? I think at the very peak, it's just... Sun, basically. It's just sun. Yeah. Oh, God. And at the other, other pole. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Season-wise, it would probably be a bit grim. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. when I was in Norway, it was an hour and a half of nighttime. Yeah, yeah. that's, yeah, I can't imagine that. Mm. I, I mean, we watch these films and it's interesting how they must, um, the, you know, that must inform the characters and the narrative of these films so much. I mean, there's so much hard drinking and, you know, um, seafood. I loved in this film how it was, you when know. When they're making the sushi. 
Well, the, <laughs> but that was interesting from the point of view. It was seafood from a completely different country, and yeah. they kind of couldn't get that quite right. But when they had, um, you know, the the customer who comes in and asks for sardines and beer, and they get this kind of really interesting dish that's plonked in uh. front of him, and that he seems quite accepting of. But <laughs> well, it certainly doesn't seem like his expectations were any greater than yeah, that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, The Other Side of Hope is in limited release now. Three, triple, R. For the final t- film tonight, we are taking a look at stop-motion animation um, with Ardman's latest Early Man, directed by Nick Park of Wallace and Gromis fame in his first solo effort. Set at the dawn of time when prehistoric creatures such as giant ducks and woolly mammoths roam the earth, Early Man tells the story of Doug along with his pig sidekick Hog- Hognob as they unite his tribe against a mighty enemy, Lord Nuth, of the Bronze Age city. To win back their home in the valley, they must beat Bronze City champions at a game of soccer, because of course. The film is incredibly silly, uh, complete with visual slapsticker gags and pun humour. Uh, my favourite line was, take him away and kill him slowly, with the guards then walking off slowly. Uh, <laughs> the voice cast is impressive, with Eddie Redmayne, Timothy Spall, Maisie Williams, Tim Hiddleston and Miriam Margulies. The film is a whole lot of fun, though I'm not sure if it's at the same level of, as Chicken Run. Uh, <laughs> what did everyone else think? I don't think it's actually at the same level as that, or especially Wallace and Gromit, which is the yes. pinnacle of Ardman accomplishment. Uh, especially the wrong trousers, which I adore so oh much to this no. day. But, so gorgeous. But I still have quite a lot of fun with this. It is extremely silly. I mean, <laughs> and, and it's scientifically, uh, historically improbable. I don't think there were giant ducks. Uh, <laughs> or but, people around uh, the time of dinosaurs. Or around the time of giant ducks. Or, yeah. <laughs> or giant ducks, full stop, <laughs> with giant teeth. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, it's curious how this became a sports film. It's not exactly, <laughs> it's early man. Um, Did not see that coming. No, but really it becomes uh, a film not unlike a stop motion um, escape from victory, escape to victory. Do you remember this film in which based loosely on, well, firstly a Hungarian film, which was in turn based on real events, a bunch of soccer players uh, had to take on the Nazis in order to be spared the Holocaust. Does, and the soccer team featured, alongside Michael Caine and Sylvester Stallone, Pele, the Brazilian football legend. Oh, my and, God, he was yeah, actually in it. Yeah, he was in it. And wow. it was this totally bonkers film, which I later learned was actually based on um, some real events that yeah. the Ukrainians, uh, prisoners of war, had to had to uh, play soccer for their lives. And I was actually thinking of that. I was thinking of the Holocaust while watching an Aardman film. <laughs> But it was more um, English versus French, wasn't it? Well, it was yes, kind Lord of like a, so a real French. A real French. Yeah, the mm, idea yeah. that the, the French are the civilised and the, the English are the barbarians and that whole idea of superiority, which, you know, having Eddie, Eddie Redmayne seems to... Like the, vo- the vocal casting was perfect in regards of what those actors would usually play in film. Except Maisie Williams, who played the the young woman in the, the Bronze City who helps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Didn't you, but didn't you think that was good? 
No, not really. Oh, as in I thought she was more um, because of her character in Game of Thrones mm. as Arya. Yeah. Arya, she's the, you know, the the girl that rises, you know, above the odds and the, the renegade girl and she gets to be the renegade girl, the bend it like Beckham yes. chick in this one. Wasn't you know? convinced by the French accent though. You weren't convinced by not the... French accent. Yeah, I'll give that. I'll well, give that. I don't know what that accent was yeah. she was doing. I thought she was German at one stage. Oh, yeah. oh. Is her voice meant to be that distinctive anyway? I didn't think anyone no, was cast no. for being all that distinctive. No, but it was I, actually I didn't really pick voices. And did in fact, you, Rob, you Bri- Rob Brydon voiced several characters, including mm. two named Brian. Brian, um, and the sports commentators. Yeah, they were great. And he <laughs> no doubt cast exactly because he can sound like whoever he feels like. So he can't, exactly. in that case, like two soccer commentators. And he was the, he was the messenger pigeon. Yes, which was yes. possibly the funniest thing in the, the film, yes, seeing it yes, enact yes. its uh, messages yes, uh, quite yeah. violently, yes. <laughs> satisfyingly violently. <laughs> yeah, look, you, you know, I, I, look, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I thought it was a, a very sweet film. I liked the way there was probably a, a, a few few sort of subtle messaging in there also about um, the idea of uh, supposedly superior cultures um you know, conquering uh, less civilised cultures and the rights and wrongs of that, Um, definitely taking over a pristine environment with their mining conglomeration, which is exactly what they were. So this idea of the Stone Age to the Bronze Age and that that sort of progression. Where he's like, get to mining ore. Or what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was that was very that was very <laughs> cute, and I do like the. I, I'm kind of obsessed with Ardman and their their decision whether to put lips on um, one of their characters yeah. or not. <laughs> well, they certainly are very unsparing when it comes to the teeth. These these are the, the toothiest <laughs> characters in all cinema. I think they have amazing teeth. They uh, are. They 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 have an incredible um, cinematic style of animation, though. I mean, this it was a nice tight little eighty nine minutes. I think it went for and but if you're doing claymation so stop motion basically mm. um, that's probably you know a lifetime that's of a few work. years in the studio yeah. with a team of stop motion animators and a few other people pulling a few CG tricks for backgrounds and superimpositions but yeah that's a lot of mm. hands-on absolutely work. a I, long time and I love watching um, sort of watching the arms of the the, the, sort of the characters because you get to see all the fingerprints mm. sort of <laughs> very briefly appear as yes. they move, yeah, so, yeah. which I think is lovely. There's, um, they, they paid special attention to the lighting, though. It was really lovely. They, they tried to create a really cinematic mm. lighting scape, which I thought was lovely, rather than just drench it all in sort of, you know, strong lighting or shadowed, you know. it was There was a lot of nuance in that. Mm. But also I think they they filmed, and I don't know whether it was uh, an actual football match or not, but they did credit a crowd at um, a Bristol um, stadium for mm-hmm. a thousand people for providing the crowd noises. So they went to a lot of prob- uh, trouble to get the actual effect of being in a football stadium mm. and creating that. Gla- well, it was presented in this, obviously, in the, the you know, the, the idea of a ye olde world, a gladiatorial stadium and this showdown between cavemen and the bronze 
um, age or I think the team were called Real Bronzia or something, which was very cute, and that all their prima donna players and that that was the, uh, the, the you know, it was very much about the working man as well, the idea of the... Um, the princes, the prince players, you know, who were all their superstar players and then they um – but they, their advantage, the caveman's advantage was to play as a team rather than play as individuals. So you've got, you know, it just reminded me of the Argentinian um, football team with their flowing locks <laughs> and, you know, that. And they even played on the fact that someone got an injury and was like, oh, oh, you know, played up. It was extra bad, the injury. You well, there, know. there was a little <laughs> subtext in there about the spirit of the game, something that might resonate very much with Australian sports fans at the moment, <laughs> given the whole... I have no idea what I'm talking about. Usually, Stu, I should now be any different. (laughs) But just quietly, cricket. (laughs) (laughs) Cricket. But, um, yeah, the the, the Ardmans, I think that, yeah, that sort of little... You know, working working class vibe comes out really strongly in all Ardman stuff. I remember something from, which was what personal favourite of mine, after we were harking back before with our Ardman uh, works called Creature Comforts. Oh, yeah. Did you ever Gorgeous. see that? Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Which was lovely. Which was where they took um, they took interviews from people in housing estates talking about their experiences in the housing and um, and they animated it with um, uh, zoo animals. So they were like, oh, well, it's a little crowded, but I don't mind it, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, it was gorgeous. <laughs> yeah. Um, what accent was that ever? I don't yeah. know. Don't yeah. even do you. Miriam Margulies was one of the, the actresses. She was the queen, yeah. the, the queen of mm. it. When um, the credits came up, I, I was really surprised. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't think any of the voice actors were particularly noticeable. Well, I picked Mark Williams, uh, this, um, he was on the Fast Show. He's an English character actor and comedian. Yeah. And tons of things. I heard him as one of the really gormless uh, cavemen. Ah, okay. and, but Richard Ayuardi, who's so distinctive, yes. I didn't pick no. him throughout it, which mm. was a bit odd. Even there was a joke about moss in there, and I still didn't um, twig <laughs> to that gag, <laughs> being the name of his character in the IT crowd. Yeah. But a funny little absurdist moment in its own right, a weird little one line, well, one word gag just simply said moss yeah. it was very funny you have to see it well even Tom Hiddleston you know because you know he's just you're know, a Loki in the Thor movies mm. and you know uh, often will play a little bit of a nefarious character in this got to do the same but with a a French accent a so how yeah. yeah you're yeah. just not going to pick him yeah <laughs> One thing um, I did notice at my screening, there were a lot of parents with their kids and the kids were so silent during the entire screening. They didn't laugh once. They (laughs) didn't react at all. Up until the very end where there's a gag with the rabbit. That was the only sound the kids made in the entire screening. Really? It was the parents who were laughing at all of the puns throughout the film, which I thought was really, really interesting. I think some of the humour got lost on the kids in my screening. Mm. Yeah, whereas I understood all the puns and regretted some of them. <laughs> but that's puns, right? Yeah. yeah. There are a lot of puns. Some of them are terrible. Some, yeah. some are quite funny, though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, Early Man is uh, playing in general release now. You have been listening to Emma Westwood, Cerise Howard and Stuart Richards. Thank you to the incredible Faith Everard who edits the podcast version of this show and to Carl Chapman on the decks tonight. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.